This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. We hate to tell you this, but we're not going to talk about eye anatomy on today's program. Dr. Gary Aguilar is not able to join us, and I know that a lot of you are going to be keenly disappointed by this, but we'll try and make it up to you on next week's show. In fact, we'll try to make it up to you on this week's show by again going to Southern California and having a little more fun talking about novelty records, which is something of a stretch, perhaps, of public affairs, but hey, who doesn't like music? And we firmly believe that, uh, you know, as the decades roll on, they look back to try and make sense of the culture of the 20th and 21st centuries. Well, these songs are going to give people some problems. Therefore, we hope that our discussion today will help, in some way, future historians. And speaking of history, we'd like to begin every program with On This Date in History, and we'll do that again today, but i got to tell you, today is not one of the more scintillating days in history. The date in question today is, of course, August 22nd, and it was on August 22nd in 1642 that the English Civil War began between supporters of Charles I the Royalists or Cavaliers, and those of Parliament, the Roundheads. Oh, and as I'm sure you all recall, the Roundheads won that one because they had the best general of the lot, Oliver Cromwell. For 10 years under Cromwell, England stopped being a monarchy. But because they couldn't figure out how to run the country using Parliament, they went back to the old system of having a king. Speaking of kings of England, on August 22nd in 1775, King George III officially recognized the American Revolution when he proclaimed the American colonies to be in a state of open rebellion. And speaking of England versus America, on August 22nd in 1851, the U.S. schooner America bested a fleet of Great Britain's finest ships in a race around England's Isle of Wight. An ornate silver trophy was later donated to the New York Yacht Club on condition it forever be placed in international competition. An international competition, which is, by the way, going on right now in nearby San Francisco Bay. I guess America is defending the America's Cup. At least Larry Ellison of Oracle is, having won the race and attempting to defend the race with something that I guess vaguely resembles ships. They do float, and they do use something resembling sails, and, uh, well, we'll have more to say about that as the America's Cup unfolds in September. But let's move on. Yours truly attempts every so often to create more order in not only his house, but all the files that go into this program, and in going through my personal library to try and find some volumes which I might perhaps give to the used bookstore, I found the ultimate reference book, The Wits Thesaurus by Lance Davidson, which ought to prove a goldmine for future contributions to this program in terms of quotes of the day, jokes of the day, and some pretty good quips. Thus, we will supplement our usual fare momentarily. But our quote of the day today, not coming from the book, instead comes from Jimmy Fallon's writers, who noted recently... During a fundraiser last night, Mitt Romney told Republicans they need to pick a candidate in 2016 who can actually win. And Republicans said, yeah, I wish you'd told us that last year, but uh, yeah, thanks a lot. And our quip of the day comes from Conan O'Brien's writers, who said, Brigham Young University has been named the top sober school in America for the 16th year in a row. The students celebrated by having the worst party ever. For our joke of the day, we are going to go to the Wits Thesaurus. 
Now, some years back on the program, I know by way of preface that we were talking to Dr. Andy Jones, who produces the wonderful program every Wednesday on this station, Dr. Andy's Poetry and Technology Hour. We thought about combining forces to talk about the illustrious Round Table of the Algonquin, bunch of American wits who used to get together for food and drink uh, back in the 20s and 30s. The charter members of this uh, group of wits apparently included Franklin Pierce Adams, Robert Benchley, Haywood Brune, Mark Conley, Ruth Hale, George S. Kaufman, Dorothy Parker, Harold Ross, Robert E. Sherwood, John Peter Toohey, and Alexander Wolcott. The collection of great quips and one-liners to come out of this group is pretty legendary. But our joke of the day involves an anecdote of some of these folks. Apparently, writer Franklin Pierce Adams escorted Beatrice Kaufman, who was the wife of the playwright, George S. Kaufman, one of the founding members. And uh, when they went to a party, she happened to sit down on a cane-seated chair. The seat suddenly broke, ensnaring Beatrice in the frame with her legs in the air. Reportedly, as the shocked partygoers stood in silence, Adams said sternly, I've told you a hundred times, Beatrice, that that's not funny. And I think that gives you some idea of the caliber of humorists we're talking about here. We must do a few more of those. But let's first talk about our stat of the day, which is, according to a new survey cited on Marketplace.org, Americans will leave an average of nine paid vacation days unused this year. This is partly because they worry that their bosses will think they're lazy or that their job could get eliminated while they're away. But skipping vacations has a cost. Women who don't take them are two to eight times more likely to suffer from depression, while men, the risk of heart attack rises by a third. To which we would like to add, take your vacation time. Life is short. And by the way, water is short. And I'd like to digress momentarily to note that I just had a house full of people coming up from the Bay Area to do some white water kayaking on the South Fork of the American River, which was a blast. Although this correspondent has concluded that he probably should learn a little bit more about the actual art of kayaking, and at least the science of it, because swimming through Class 3 or Class 3 plus rapids can sometimes be more exciting than, than you like. I do note that while driving around my neighborhood on the way to the foothills, one of the party noted that, well, I guess Sacramento didn't get the memo about water conservation. Which caused me to realize, sadly, that not everybody among my group of peers actually listens to Radio Parallax, because if they had, they probably wouldn't have said something so ignorant. If you say, rip out your lawn and replace it with prickly pear cactus so that there is more water in the reservoirs to ship south to Southern California to encourage more real estate development, what have you gained? We do like to monitor the letters to the editor of The Bee to see how... Uh, how public awareness is flowing on this issue, and it seems to be headed in the right direction. Wrote a Kathy Hemley from Cortland to the Bee yesterday regarding their article, Water Plan May Shift Delta Tunnels. Ms. Hemley noted that uh, no matter what you call it, the BDCP, the tunnels, or the big suck, there's no benefit for Northern California in this proposal. The newest version of the BDCP changes nothing. Modifying a few details won't improve a bad plan. The BDCP remains a water transfer with a horrific footprint. She then asked the question, which we've asked on this program many times, how can diverting water possibly help the water-based ecology of the Delta and Bay? 
How can removing this water possibly be termed conservation? How can we justify the $20 billion to $50 billion cost of this nonsense? If the delta is broken, it is because of excessive water exports. It is impossible to improve the delta fisheries by removing water. To which we say, Kathy Hemley of Cortland, good on ya. And you know, I think two more are worth it here. Let's digress into a couple other letters. One from Carol Rootman of Newcastle a few days ago to the B asked, regarding low water levels give rise to talk of drought, the Folsom Lake water level is dropping nine inches a day. Placer County Water Agency customers are going to pay almost 13% more for water. Yet, Governor Jerry Brown and Senator Dianne Feinstein persist in promoting the Delta Tunnel boondoggle, the flawed premise of which is that California has ample water and we just need to move it from north to south faster. What California really needs is a recycling, conservation, and desalinization program funded to the same level as the misguided tunnels. And lastly, writing from Roseville a couple days back, a John Henderson wrote, Regarding water agencies must prep for climate change, according to most studies of California water consumption, agriculture uses about 80% of the fresh water supply, while commercial and industrial uses account for about 16%, leaving about 4% for household use, including lawn watering. Assuming California households cut their use in half, it would add up to 2% of the water consumed. Adding water meters and eliminating gutter flooding won't make a significant impact on our water supply. Well, Mr. Henderson may be right about the percentage, but I guarantee you, they want our Delta water down in Riverside County and San Diego County and all of Southern California to continue building homes out in a desert climate. All right, let's get off that topic and talk about something else that's more fun. And in this case, an irresistible news item. It turns out that a long-lost Orson Welles film that was believed destroyed in 1975 has been discovered in a northern Italian warehouse and will finally make its public debut 75 years after being filmed. It's a silent film, and you know, the name alone, <laughs> in our opinion, makes it worthy of talking about in this program, it's a silent film titled Too Much Johnson. This is a slapstick comedy made before Wells went to Hollywood to film Citizen Kane. In fact, it was Too Much Johnson that introduced Orson Welles to the art of making films. Articles note that how a 35mm nitrate print arrived at an Italian warehouse remains a mystery, but it was found by a shipping company and turned over at some point to a local film society. But the film seemed of no particular value and was left unopened for years, according to Juliana Pupin, spokesman for the archive. Sintecta del Friuli. Too Much Johnson stars Joseph Cotton, quite an illustrious actor, and is noted to be less a feature film than a series of scenes made to be shown as part of a production of the play by the same name. I know from previous reading that Orson Welles did not consider this to be a finished product, but uh, nevertheless, it's got great historical value, and I hope that we can all see it sometime soon. Apparently, a U.S. premiere of this film is scheduled for October 16th at the George Eastman House's Dryden Theater. As noted, this film was not intended to stand by itself, but was designed as the cinematic aspect of Wells' Mercury Theater's stage presentation of William Gillette's 1894 comedy, of the same name, of course, 
which is about a New York playboy who flees from the violent husband of his mistress and borrows the identity of a plantation owner in Cuba who's expecting the arrival of a mail-order bride. To which we would add that on this very program, we've been privileged to have had Norman Lloyd, still active and acting in age, I believe, 96. Norman Lloyd was a member of Orson Welles' Mercury Theater dating back to the 1930s. And perhaps we'll see if we can get Mr. Lloyd's comment upon this piece with Joseph Cotton, whom he worked with uh, extensively. All right, let's do the good, the bad, and the ugly. It was a good week last week for setting the record straight with the news that the CIA has finally admitted that it had a hand in the overthrow of the Iranian government back in 1953. For the whole story on that, we would refer you to the excellent book, All the Shah's Men. But uh, I guess the CIA is to be encouraged for openness. 60 years later is better than never. It was, on the other hand, a bad week last week for setting the record straight by the CIA with the news that they've made headlines by acknowledging that Area 51 exists. Yes, apparently news agencies with a straight face reported the following. The CIA history released Thursday not only refers to Area 51 by name, I guess they call it Area 51, and describes some of the aviation activities that took place there, but locates the Air Force Base on a map alongside the dry groom lake bed. Boy, now there's progress for you. We would add that we are not among those who suspect that Area 51 harbors space aliens and captured flying saucers. Mr. Merlin points out that would be Area 5150. We also note that while having lunch with General Chuck Yeager a couple of years ago, which is a cool thing to be able to actually say, he kind of eyed Mr. Millen and I. He, goes, he said, yeah, I know what's going on over at Area 51. To which I said, but if you told us, you'd have to kill us. He didn't say anything, but the snort that followed sort of implied that there was a lot less to Area 51 than meets the eye. And lastly, it was an ugly week last week for Believers in Miracles with the news that a group of Fresno Catholics believe that a local crepe myrtle tree is dripping the tears of God. A parishioner named Maria Waibara was quoted as saying, When you say, Glory be to God in Jesus' name, the tree starts throwing out more water. Upon closer inspection, an arborist named John Reelhorn agreed that something is falling from the tree in front of St. John's Cathedral, but it isn't water. He notes that the aphids on the tree will suck the sap, the sap goes through the aphid, and then it is a, quote, honeydew, unquote, excrement from the aphid, and it gets so heavy in the summertime that it will drip down. And you, dear listener, get to choose where you stand on this one. Miracle of God or aphid excrement. You make the call. All right, we've got three or four minutes left in the segment. I don't, I don't know whether to do more quotes from the Wits Thesaurus or do more news items. I think I'll do news items. And I want to quote just one more letter, in this case, not about water, but about doctors. Dr. William Barger of Sacramento wrote The Bee earlier this month. 
as follows. Regarding medical devices cheaper overseas, this article may be technically correct, but is misleading about the fees Sacramento area hospitals and surgeons receive for hip replacement surgery. This article overstates the actual cost for hip replacement surgery. The list price of the implant in the story was $13,000, but no hospital ever pays list price. In the Sacramento area, the price a hospital pays for an implant is $3,000 to $5,000. No surgeon in this area receives anything close to $17,500. Medicare pays about one-tenth that amount. For that amount of money, the surgeon must provide the initial pre-op care, perform the surgery, and provide all care for three months after the surgery. In the future, there will be a shortage of surgeons willing to perform the needed hip and knee replacements, mainly due to the low reimbursement as compared to other types of surgery. We're quite certain that Dr. Barger is correct, and we're quite certain that most of the reporting you see about healthcare costs is pretty screwy, like the costs themselves. Dictated by insurance companies, deliberately confusing, and just a damn mess. And speaking of where the U.S. stands internationally in terms of medicine, how about this one? Piece from New Scientist magazine. Rwanda doesn't do many things better than the U.S., but in some ways it protects its teenage girls better. It has been more than twice as successful as the U.S. at vaccinating girls against human papillomavirus, HPV, which can lead to cervical cancer. The piece quotes Tom Frieden, director of the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention noting that our vaccination rate is stuck at one-third of our teen girls, yet Rwanda has vaccinated more than 80% of its target population. In 2012, only 33% of eligible girls had all three doses needed for maximum protection, well short of the 80% target. The CDC warns that unless uptake improves, there will be 1,400 unnecessary deaths from cervical cancer each year. Frieden said that a continuing worry among parents is that the jab will tempt their daughters to engage in risky sex. He said, HPV vaccine does not open the door to sex. It closes the door to cancer. Let's close with a couple of quasi-news items. The first from the Week magazine, but widely reported uh, in many locations last February, was a piece about online revenge. Apparently, Pastor Alois Bell of St. Louis dined at Applebee's last winter and was part of a party of 10 and found the restaurant and added an automatic 18% tip. Instead of poning up the $6.29 gratuity on her itemized bill, Pastor Bell wrote, I give God 10%. Why do you get 18? And then gave the server a tip of zero. The server showed the receipt to fellow waitress Chelsea Welch, who posted a photo of it online on Reddit. The receipt went viral. Bell's signature was identified and thousands of netizens targeted the minister for abuse. Even though Bell admitted her note was a lapse in my judgment, she demanded that Applebee's fire Welch. And it did. Of course, this did get a response from the waitress, although not in America. Writing in The Guardian UK, Chelsea Welch said, As the waitress who was fired, may I say a word on behalf of waitstaff everywhere? When you eat at a restaurant, Tipping is not optional. Restaurants like Applebee's typically pay the hardworking wait staff $3.50 an hour, and the gratuity is considered part of our salary. Without the tip, I can't pay my bills, and I'll never save enough to go to college. But even though tips are how waiters get paid in America, many customers think it's fine to stiff them to save a buck or two. 
Next time you go out to eat, remember this about the people who serve you. We work hard, we care, we deserve to be paid for that. Of course, the alternative might be like they do in Australia, actually pay the staff a living wage. All right, and finally, a piece from Mental Floss, looking back in history, which is one of our specialties here, noted that back in 1970, two Swedish couples launched a cabaret act. They called it Festfolk, which translates amazingly as both party people and engaged couples. But Swedish audiences weren't impressed by the double entendre, so the group languished. It was two years before its members recorded a single, and when they released it, they used their real names, Bjorn and Benny and Agnetha and Annie Fried. As People Need Love climbed the charts, the group's management foresaw a speed bump on the road to superstardom, that unwieldy moniker. He preferred to call the foursome by its palindromic acronym. But Sweden already had an ABBA. It was a well-known canned fish brand. A newspaper held the contest to come up with a better name, but that wasn't satisfactory, so Bjorn and Benny... Agnetha and Annie Frid negotiated with ABBA, the fish company, for the rights to the name, and they reached an agreement. And the rest, as they say, is history. If you change your mind, on the first in line, This is Radio Parallax. Let's take a short break. If you need me, let me know. Gonna be around. If you got your place to go, when you're feeling down. If you're all alone 